You're listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. Learn about local issues, meet candidates, and find out what we're doing to bring more options to Georgia voters. Now here's your host, Brent Hilburn. Welcome, everyone, to our next broadcast of uh, Georgia Liberty Cast, a presentation of the uh, Libertarian Party of Georgia. Uh, today's uh, episode will um, will focus on ballot access in Georgia. Here with us is Martin Cowan. He's a former Libertarian Party of Georgia executive committee member and current candidate for U.S. House of Representatives District 13. Glad to be here. Uh, Damon Kennedy. Candidate for Georgia House of Representatives District 90. Hello, hello. And Smythe Duval. He's our candidate for Secretary of State. Hello, hello. And of course, as always, our Mr. Producer is Matt Franklin of Most Uniquest. So what we're here to talk about uh, for this episode is ballot access in Georgia, specifically how the two-party system has set up uh, the rules in essence, to not only keep libertarians out, but specifically pretty much anyone. They've set up a system to keep anyone out. And currently, Georgia's ballot access laws require that anyone running as an independent, basically, we we consider everyone an independent that's not a Republican or a Democrat, and so does the law. Uh, There's a 5% uh, requirement for House uh, for for House Georgia House districts, uh, but interestingly enough, for statewide candidates, there's no requirement at all. And then for U.S. House representatives, there's even another requirement. So we have three different people here uh, who are running for three different unique offices that all have different requirements or no or no requirement at all. So I want I want to read you something here. Um, Uh, specifically as it relates to ballot access. During the years 1970 through 2016, there have been 10,463 regularly scheduled U.S. House elections. That's in the entire United States. That's 10,463. During those years, there have been 7,200-plus U.S. House candidates on the ballot who were not nominees of the Democrat or Republican parties. So that's not too bad. That's not too bad. The state with the fewest non-Democrat, non-Republican candidates on the ballot for U.S. House during those years has been Georgia. So right now, Georgia ranks the worst in having any other candidates on besides Democrats and Republicans. Uh, So what we're here to talk about specifically, uh, each one of these candidates' experience, uh, Martin is involved in a lawsuit right now. Um, I'm going to let him tell us about the lawsuit, and then we'll circle back to it at the end so he can give us an update because it is it is ongoing uh, uh, le- uh, litigation. So, Martin, why don't you go ahead and start with um, why don't you go ahead and start with uh, tell us about Martin, and then tell us about anything specific to your race. Well, thanks very much. I'm I'm really happy to be here with you today. I have been in the or involved in the uh, Libertarian Party of Georgia for quite some time. I like to say that I'm the oldest Georgia Libertarian, but that doesn't quite capture it because there are people older than me. I happen to be 66, but I know there are older uh, Georgia Libertarians. What I mean by that is that when I was a law student at the University of Georgia in 1972, I attended 
the Georgia Libertarian Party State Convention, which was the very first Georgia State Libertarian Party first convention. The National Libertarian Party was formed the year before in 1971. So I've been around the libertarian movement since its inception. So I'm very proud of that fact. And I think that I'm probably unique in Georgia because I'm the only person that was here in 1972 that is still here in 2018. So my, my, my involvement in the party has not been as intense as it is these days. So I most recently was an executive, a member of the executive committee of the uh, Libertarian Party of Georgia. I am now a life member of the National Libertarian Party, and I'm very proud of that. I attended the 2016 uh, National Libertarian Party Convention in Orlando, and that was the most fun I ever had at a convention, I can assure you. And I'm really looking forward to uh, going to New Orleans uh, in about, I guess it's just uh, it's just 30 days that right. we'll be down in New Orleans. And I bought the gold ticket, which means you can do everything. I've got a, a, a booth, a table, uh, which I will be uh, talking to the, the people that are there about my candidacy. You have to buy the table, obviously. And I'm going to be there the entire period of time. So I'm really looking forward to being in New Orleans. Now, as has been mentioned, I, I'm an, I am one of the four plaintiffs, four plaintiffs, four human plaintiffs in a lawsuit which has been filed against the Secretary of State of Georgia. And uh, the, the, the other plaintiff is the Libertarian Party of Georgia. So there are five plaintiffs that are filed this lawsuit against uh, the Secretary of State of Georgia, the current Secretary of State of Georgia. And uh, how much do you want me to talk about that right now? Is it time, or should we have an introduction from these fellows? Well, you can go ahead and give us sort of the highlights of what of what the suit is in terms of what we're trying to do with the suit. All right, I'm uh, I'm, pr- I'm proud of the suit because it was my idea, and I'll tell you how it came about. In, in 2016, I think Judge Story, who's a federal judge in Atlanta decided a case which was called the Green Party and the Constitution Party against the Secretary of State. And the decision was that the signature requirement for the presidential statewide uh, candidates, which was 50,000 by law, that that was unconstitutional. Judge Story said that was unconstitutional. And he said, I think it's a little arbitrary, he said 7,500 is the number. That's the correct number. So that case went up to the 11th Circuit of Georgia, and it was affirmed with a very brief opinion, a non-published opinion. So the 11th Circuit uh, of the United States just basically said, boy, Judge Story, you got it right on. It's not even worth us saying anything more but to say, you're right, good job. So after that Court of Appeals case came down uh, from um, from the 11th Circuit, and, and also the Secretary of State didn't appeal it to the Supreme Court, uh, I was a member, I think I was a member at that time of the Executive Committee, of the Libertarian Party, and I said to the executive committee, hey, why don't we file a lawsuit against the Secretary of State for congressional candidates? Because the law in Georgia is, and this is true in my case, as a candidate for Congress in Georgia as a Libertarian, I have to collect 20,188 signatures. And that's a lot more than 7,500, which is the requirement for president. And so it seems like a slam dunk to me, honestly, that I should win that case because 
there are 14 congressional districts, and if you divided 14 into the 7,500, which is the presidential requirement, you get a number close to 800 signatures is what you should have, rather than 20,188. So I suggested that to the executive committee, and I was appointed a committee of one. That's what happens to volunteers, right? In the Libertarian Party, that's correct. I was the, liber- <laughs> the committee of one to follow up on that, and so I started investigating the, uh, the question of how, how do we proceed here. And I, I found the expert, uh, Richard Winger. People may know this name. Yes. Uh, he'd actually been an expert. I mean, I, I should have asked around the committee and said, who should I ask? And they, many people know him from years past, but somehow I came across his name. I actually contacted somebody outside the party, and they told me his name. I contacted him and got in touch with him and told him what I had in mind. And at some point, he referred us to a lawyer who... Uh, We used to work for the American Civil Liberties Union, a very fine man, an excellent lawyer. And he agreed to take the case on a basically a contingent fee. That's not exactly the word that was used. But the idea is that because it's a civil rights case, ours is is a civil rights case, this ballot accident lawsuit, that the statute, which is sometimes called 1983, which is the section number of uh, of the federal code under which this lawsuit files, the court, if we win, can award our attorney's fees. And so he's agreed just to look to the government, the Secretary of State, when we win. Because I think we'll win. I, don't, I, I think it's a slam dunk, as I've already said. But I am a lawyer, and it's always risky to say it's a slam dunk. You don't never tell your client that, because right. it's, you can make mistakes. Uh, but, you know, I'm the client, so I can tell myself that. Um, right. So I think we have a very good chance of winning, and I think there's at least a 50-50 chance that I'll actually be on the ballot, and I'm very excited about that. And I'll talk about it more when I get my next turn. Right, and and I want to I want to emphasize something here for everyone. If you voted in the Republican primary, one of the two remaining participants in the Republican primary who's going to be in the runoff is our current Secretary of State, who chose to fight. Every ballot access lawsuit that's come up over his eight years. So if you decide you want to, you've participated in the Republican primary the first time, when you go and participate in the Republican runoff, just remember one of the two people there has fought your, has fought your right, your ability to have someone else on the ballot Besides Republicans and Democrats, that's a very important thing. Brian Kemp has fought us for his entire eight years. Uh, He will tell you that it's because if he didn't fight, the state of Georgia would be saddled with paying legal costs. But it also costs money to fight. So, in essence, he's spent money to keep from spending money. And he did pay legal costs. That's correct. Against the Green Party, Constitution Party. The attorney's fees were awarded to those plaintiffs. That's correct. He could have stopped there, but he continued on. So just I just wanted to bring that point up. So, Martin, where are you now in what where are you because you you're in a sort of a unique situation with being a plaintiff in a lawsuit and collecting signatures. What do you think you're going to have to do in terms of you're obviously not going to get 20,000 signatures. I'm not going to get 20,188 signatures. Um Damon Kennedy and I have gone out together a lot and done that process. Right. And so we have a lot of experience. We've paid our dues. Right. So we are, I am collecting signatures. Damon is collecting signatures and we're working on that. This is my strategy. I'm going to turn my petition in, uh, 
in July. I mean, it's the, the deadline for the petition is July the 10th. I will not have 20,188. Uh, I will have between 500 and 1,000 signatures would be my guess. Okay. Um, and what's going to happen is the Secretary of State will deny my petition. They'll say, okay, we received it, but it's inadequate because it's 19,000 signatures short or right. some number like that. Well, I've asked the lawyer to do this. Once that happens, what I want him to do is ask for a temporary restraining order because the case will not have been resolved by that time. It's pending right now. It's in the phase of discovery, which means the lawyers on both sides are trying to collect the evidence so that they can then present it to the judge and say, Judge, this is the evidence. Please decide it. There's no necessity for a trial because the facts aren't in dispute. We don't need a jury to decide Right. There's right. no there's no jury issues. So it'll be decided based upon evidence submitted by affidavit and otherwise. And those things are being collected now. So but that won't be decided by in time for my purposes, I don't think, although this allegedly the the scheduling of the case has been scheduled in such a way that it'll be resolved before the time I have to appear on the ballot or not. But I'm going to ask the lawyer and have asked him. That when at the day that the Secretary of State says, Martin, no, your petition is inadequate, I'm going to ask him to file a temporary protective order, which says, basically, look, because you're likely to win, it really looks like you're going to win the lawsuit. We're going to make him put you on the ballot now. And I think that'll I think that very is very likely to happen um, because I think the case I think it is very likely that we'll win based upon what Judge Story once said uh, two years ago. And I, I just don't see how we can lose the best the best outcome would be for the judge to say no signature requirement that is it's entirely unconstitutional you know i'm not very comfortable with the judge story for example having said you know it's unconstitutional but i'm just going to make up a number 7500 i mean where does that come from right it's much fair it seems much fairer to me to say you've got an unconstitutional law it's gone strike it down strike it down make the legislature redo it and the legislature can redo it unfortunately that the judge story didn't have that in his case, and the legislature so far has just ignored ignored Correct. it. Correct. There's been no action on the on the 7,500 signature requirement on the presidential level. You'd think at least the legislature would have modified the statute to say the number 7,500 right. or something. They've done nothing. They've done nothing. So I'm very optimistic that I'll actually get on the ballot, and that'll be fun because then we can run a real campaign. And I have a strategy. This, I'm going to give away my secret strategy, if I may. Go ahead. This is the secret strategy. There is a Republican running this time, and it's a little unusual because three my opponent's been unopposed by anybody three for three times. And your and, opponent is is what is he? He's David a, Scott. David Scott. David okay. Scott's a, so Democrat. He's a Democrat. He's been there since two thousand and three. Right. Been unopposed three times. He's unopposed in six two thousand and sixteen. Un, unopposed in two thousand and fourteen. Unopposed and another time. Uh, the exact date I escapes me. But there is a Republican running this time, and I don't know, I don't know who he is. I really haven't seen anything on him. I don't know if the Republican Party is behind him or not. There were two in the, in the primary on May 22nd, and this guy won. Uh, but my theory is this. I've got to beat him in the, in the general, and he and I together have to get 51% of the votes. Picture that, right? I beat the Republican in the general election. We don't. Nobody has a majority. That's just, just me. And the Republican, we take 51%. Then David Scott only has 49 and I have to be in the runoff. Can you imagine the public national interest in a libertarian candidate in the two-month gap between November the 6th and January the 9th, uh, 2019, when I will be head-to-head with David Scott? David Scott is completely useless as a congressman. And I have not met—there's one person— 
of the hundreds and hundreds of people that Dave and I have met that said, I like David Scott. One, one person. <laughs> anyway, so I think it'll be a fascinating time because I think money will pour into the campaign. I think um, the Republicans will support me. Everybody, the independents will support me. You know, the Democrats have no reason for, to vote for David Scott. I mean, two weeks ago, he was doing a art contest in the Douglas County Courthouse. That was his thing. Federal government has no business doing art. It's, it's, that's not the job of the federal government. So uh, I think my strategy is a good one. And I'd li- I'm really looking forward to that, that, that gap between November and January when, uh, when we can run an all-out campaign supported by everybody in the country to get this Democrat out and get a libertarian in for the first time, as far as I know, in history. Well, and, I think, and I think you see the fact that look at what you're describing, the excitement in an area that's just been, that's just had no excitement. It's just been the same, you know, Democrat runs, no opposition. He gets the seat. It's been that way a number of times, but you're beginning to see what choice brings to not only politics, but to a community, like you said, the excitement level. So we'll, we'll circle back to what, what the lawsuit where we are in terms of the lawsuit, more specific, as much as you can tell us uh, later on. Right now, now, Martin was running for a U.S. House seat. Okay, so his ballot his ballot requirements were 20,000-plus signatures. We're going to move over to Damon next, who's running for a Georgia House seat. So tell us what your requirements are. Well, I'm running for a Georgia House, District 90, and uh, it's 5% of the eligible voters— uh, active voters within my district. So my requirement is 1,767 signatures. Now, the very first time when I went out to a petition uh, with Martin, Martin had experienced petitioning before. Uh, I was wide-eyed and bushy-tailed thinking in my mind, okay, if I go out there, you know, one sheet is 15 signatures. In my mind, I had, you know, I'm going to get 15 or probably three fully signed petitions, so 45. I'll be able to do uh, this. Yeah. And I'll be able I'll to knock this, I'll, I'll knock this out head. in no time. I did yeah. in my head. I'll be done in about a month. Great. Fantastic. Well, the very first time I went out, uh, some people don't answer their door. Um, we, we've basically been doing it every Saturday and Sunday since the, the uh, petitioning started in February, all the way up until the end, which is July 10th, as Martin mentioned, and every weekend we've been doing it. So of the 1767 signatures that I need, I currently have about 650, and that's going starting at noon on the Saturday and the Sunday, going up until about three or four. We've got walking lists. A lot of walking lists have, uh, let's say, an entire subdivision has probably about 150 households, let's say. And so, if there are several people eligible voters at each house, theoretically, you're at three or four, three or four hundred people. Okay, mm-hmm. um, so. If you do, if you look at the math and kind of extrapolate, you figure, okay, you know, three or four walking lists, I'm done in about a month. Okay. But again, there's always those extenuating circumstances. People aren't home. Sometimes you answer, you know, people answer the door and some people say, I'm a staunch Democrat or staunch Republican. I don't want to sign it. You, you try to, uh, it, it, you know, basically make the point to them that, look, this is not an endorsement of me as a candidate. It's a sign that you support free and fair elections. But some people just don't get that that concept. They right. they just they're just baffled by that. Well, and I think I think the two parties have done an excellent job at making sure that there are only two parties. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And and I think you're I think as you get out there, you know, the thing about the ballot, the thing about the signature gathering process is 
libertarians and independent candidates have to run two elections. We have to run the one now that where we go out and we have to get, you know, we have to do all the things that candidates have to do just to get on the ballot. And then we'll have to run if if we make if we if we meet that benchmark, then we'll have to turn around and run again against an opponent at some point in the future. And, you know, these are things that Democrats and Republicans don't have to do. Absolutely. You know, Democrats and Republicans pay their money and they're on the ballot. Four hundred dollars. And, and just, like, and just right. like Martin mentioned, uh, David Scott's been unopposed for the past three elections. Uh, my my opponent, uh, Pam Stevenson, has been unopposed. Probably she's been in there 10 years. She's a two year term. So she's been unopposed for 10 years. So basically five elections. And she's a what? She's a Democrat. She's a Democrat. And it, on top of that, because of the whole gerrymandering thing that they've been doing, it's basically a Democrat district. Uh, this year, the, the year I happened to run, guess what? There's a Republican on the ballot. Now, it's because that I, I put my, uh, my, my hat in the ring? Probably so. You know, because generally speaking, it's a chicken or the egg scenario. So between gerrymandered districts and the whole ballot access, a lot of times people don't want to vote for a third party because let's say there is a Democrat and Republican on the ballot, if it's not gerrymandered to the point where one of those those two could win, a lot of times people don't want to throw away their vote, you know, in air quotes, right? And so a lot of times, again, it's a chicken or the egg scenario. Most people will generally say, I don't like either candidate, but, you know, I've got to vote for one of these two major parties because otherwise the other person can't win. Well, it's, it's, it's circular logic, right? They can't win if you don't support them. And so that's how that's how this system perpetuates itself. And that's why Democrats, and Republicans keep doing this. And um, in the Georgia House this past session, there was the opportunity to fix this. But of course, there's no there there's no incentive for them to fix it, because in fixing Georgia ballot access, they're essentially uh, casting themselves out of a job because most most people, as we've been going door to door, Martin and I, uh, with some of the other volunteers we've been um, out with. People are they're hungry for change. They're hungry for change. Um, they they do not like politics as it's been going in this country, in this state. It doesn't really matter. But the good people generally don't run because in addition to the money that you have to put up to, to file uh, and the the ballot access petitions, most people were just like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I've got better stuff to do with my life than have to spend weekends trying to knock on people's doors to get them just to get on the ballot. Because like you mentioned before, Brent, it's, it's not just knocking on doors. It's expending resources, both time and money, just to get on the ballot. Right. And after that, you may, be, you may have exhausted all of your resources just to get on the ballot. And then at that point, the whole time while Democrats, Republicans have been sending out mailers and, and flyers and getting their name out there, you've just now got on the ballot. So now you possibly have no resources left, uh, you know, money, time, whatever, to get in front of the voters to, get, to, get, you know, to win. So, right. so, so tell me why libertarian? Why not? Why not Democrat or Republican? Why libertarian? There's there's about principle, right? So if you if you really cannot support, and it's about being a person of action, being a person of of principle, and showing other people that if you don't support somebody, don't do it, right? A lot of people have been swallowing their you know swallowing that pill for quite a long time, Democrats and Republicans, and they will acknowledge the fact that they don't like either one of them, right? But you know, if you cannot enthusiastically support somebody, I figure why do it? Why vote at all if you're not going to be enthusiastically, uh, if you're not going to enthusiastically support your candidate, right? And so the Libertarian Party, to me, is the only one that respects property rights, respects my right to live my life as I see fit, 
as long as I don't hurt another individual. And that's the beauty of libertarianism is that it can be as an individual as you. Right. So I truly love in, you know, the libertarian party. I've probably been a libertarian since probably 2008. I uh, heard of this guy named Ron Paul. Don't know if anybody heard of him. No. <laughs> That's a new guy. I never right, heard of that right. guy. So, you know, <laughs> when when you hear that guy speak, he's is he the the smoothest talker in the world? Absolutely not. But his the what he talks about is so common sense and it just makes sense just from a just a logical standpoint that a lot of times what Democrats or Republicans are doing, they're selling they're selling hopes and dreams and and hypotheticals that they've been proven to not work. But they keep playing the same game every single election cycle. Hey, vote for us. We're going to do this. Nobody ever really looks at the history and the track record. It's never happened. Right. The Democrats for the past 50 years have, have sold this dream that the welfare state is, is necessary. Um, but we still keep having the conversation in 2018 that says there's this huge wealth gap. Well, how is that the case? Because we've been talking about for the past 50 years, if we keep giving money to you know, the poor and the middle class, it's going to it's going to work out and everything's going to be fine. But they keep saying at the same time, the rich keep getting rich, the poor keep getting poor. So which is it? Right. So. <laughs> right. So, so right. That, that's on the one side. And then on the other side, it's it's like cats and dogs. Right. They a lot of times they want to be contrarian for the sake of being contrarian. So the second you criticize the, the Democrats, then Republicans Say, hey, yeah, you're right. I'm like, hey, hold on, let's let's get to you now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So so then they always talk about the Democrats talk about social welfare, how they need to keep that, and the Republicans say, let's get rid of, let's get rid of social welfare, but they say nothing about corporate welfare. Right. Now I work in the transportation industry, and uh, Amazon, for those that aren't aware, Amazon has their headquarters in Seattle, Washington. Well, somewhere in the country, Atlanta being a possibility, they're going to have a second headquarters. Now. There are many cities that are in the running for Amazon's second headquarters. The challenge is for taxpayers is that you're going to be funding them, whatever city they go to, whether it's Atlanta, Philadelphia, Boston, whatever, you're on the hook for the billions of dollars in tax breaks that Amazon is going to be getting. And, and not, not only that. But Amazon knows that, and they're shopping it around. Absolutely, they are. They are absolutely shopping the fact that we're going to bring jobs to your city. So for that, you owe us. So you're absolutely right when it comes to when it comes to that point. So I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I want to I want to emphasize that Amazon is wielding that like the hammer of Thor right now yeah. over all these cities' heads. And there there are so many different um, different ways we can look at libertarianism. Why it's better than what we currently have. And Amazon is one example. You know, but let's take their name out of it because somebody likes Amazon. Okay, whatever. But you you fill in the blank with all sorts of different other companies. They do the same thing. And I'm a, I'm a great, I'm a sports nut. I love sports. But what goes on in the sports realm is unconscionable from a taxpayer perspective, where you have billionaire owners, which we're, we're talking about how astute they are as businessmen. But at the end of the day, if they've got a, a business um, of having a sports team, and let's say they need a new stadium. Okay, the Atlanta Falcons recently moved into the Mercedes-Benz Dome. It's a great stadium. It should be for a billion dollars. Okay, it's great. But there's nothing wrong with the Georgia Dome. Okay, it was probably 20 years old. Could it have used some upgrades? Sure. Great. But if we're going to do the same game every 20 years, we're going to get a new stadium for a new sports team for, before, so they don't leave town. Well, these astute businessmen, they're doing what's in their best interest. But taxpayers need to stop falling for the bait. Mm -hmm. They need to stop saying, hey, we're going to we don't want to lose our team. No, we'll give you everything you need to build the stadium. 
Well, if you're a billionaire, like, where's my free tickets? If I'm, if I'm a taxpayer, I look at it like this. If, if I give you something, I need something in return, too, right? right. So, so where's my free ticket to go to a, a Falcons game? Right. No, I still got to pay the $100-plus it takes to get in the stadium. I got to pay to park. I got to pay to you know, eat, yeah. right? So where's my benefit as a taxpayer? There is not one, right? right? And so whenever the cities that say, we're not going to do this, I think San Diego— Lost their team because they didn't play. Didn't want to play ball. They didn't want to play. And that so head, the right. other the other cities see that and they get scared. Oh no, we'll give you whatever you want. And then these these owners they know that. So right. So so basically, your 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 reasoning for for libertarian is you can see how both sides play the game and how both sides use different strategies for the exact same outcome. Absolutely. One side uses government. One side uses cronyism. Actually. I mean, I think if we're fair, we're we're watching the consolidation of the two parties into one big giant authoritarian party. I mean, mm-hmm. you you can barely recognize the difference anymore. You know, they will. I mean, I mean, look at look at the Republicans control every lever of government right now. They control every lever of government, and yet we just got a spending bill that adds one point three trillion to the debt. These are the fiscally responsible ones in government. Okay, so so what you're saying and, and, you know, I know this isn't necessarily ballot access, but what this relates to in the overall theory is when your choices are limited, we don't have these conversations. We're not having these conversations. Absolutely. There's no libertarian on the ballot that can get in front of the Republicans and the Democrats and challenge them on this and say, hey, you both equally are the problem here. Mm-hmm. And so. Thank you very much for for why, you know, for why you want to be a libertarian. And and we appreciate having you here because I'm telling you, we need more young guys like you who are hungry for something different, especially in their community. I mean, you can see, you know, all of you can see what's going on in your communities Mm -hmm. and you know what the Republicans and the Democrats collectively are doing. Back to what you said before about about how the state of Georgia um I want to I want to read to you what the state of Georgia did in in just this past in 2017. So they did they did actually deal with uh, with ballot access. They did pass a law, um, HB 268, which was signed into law on May 9th, 2017. It actually moved the deadline for petitioning candidates to file their notice of candidacy and their filing fee from June to the first week in March. So basically what the state of Georgia did was they decided they wanted to know who their competition was, the Republicans and the Democrats, as soon as they could. So they moved, they actually moved it up. It used to be in June, so we didn't have to do our filing as libertarians. Uh, You know, just for those that don't know, the libertarians, we choose our candidates at a caucus at our convention. We don't go through the normal primary uh, process because we don't have to. In the state of Georgia, you do not have to go through the primary process until you get 20% on a ballot. And once you get on a ballot, you get 20%, then you have to go through the primary process like Republicans and Democrats. Because we we haven't met that threshold, we can choose our candidates however we want. We chose our candidates in February at our convention. So the legislature knows that, so they made us they made us go ahead and file immediately so they would know who their competition was immediately rather than wait till June, which is so interesting how, you know, they, they actually did something on ballot access, but it made things worse. Mm-hmm. So, all right. Let me so, just mention, yeah, too, go ahead, Mark. It requires you. My qualifying fee was $5,220. I remember that number because it's a big one. 
So I have to pay that money in March without having the slightest idea whether I can collect 20,188 signatures. That's, that's a great So point. you have to put the money on the table long before you have gone for a month into the signature collection process. So you have to put up or shut up, and then you have to deliver on the signatures. In the old days, I suppose, that yes. you could file in June, but you could also, by that time, have been collecting signatures for six months, and you could know whether or not your money would be wasted. Right. That's, that's, a, so, that's a great point. I had I had forgotten about the fact that you since you're in a and the, and the filing fee is based on a percentage of the salary. salary of the job. So yeah. it's five. Yeah, it's five percent of the actual whatever that salary is one, for that. Thou, one 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 hundred seventy four thousand. Right, right. right. Mm-hmm. So you had to, don't you had, forget they have a million dollar each budget to pay their. Uh, their state can see his yeah, yeah, so yeah, oh, it's, yeah. it's a well paid position. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my, my filing fee was four hundred dollars, but. Um, you know, kind of goes back to the point about, um, you know, when, when we talk about the the nomination process, us having to do petition signatures, like like what kind of what Martin said, you know, when you go out there and you tell people I'm I'm running for, for uh, running for public office, the whole point is, are you do you have the ability to win? Well, I don't know. If I I, won't, I don't even know if I'll be on the ballot. <laughs> so, right, so, right. So, so so again, back to what I said before, we have to run two campaigns. Yeah. We, 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 we as libertarians, and, I, and when I say we, I'm talking about all independents, because in reality, this is a Green Party, this is Constitution, mm-hmm. this is just pure, I want to be an independent, not affiliated. We all have to run two campaigns. Mm-hmm. We have to go out, and, and like you said, when you talk to people, they're like, well, why am I wasting my time with you? I don't even know if you're going to make it on the ballot or not. I'm not signing anything. And I don't think people really realize how difficult sometimes it is to get someone to sign that petition, speak on that for a second. Just just their reluctance. I want to. I want sure. you since you've experienced it. So a lot of times when I ring somebody's doorbell, you know, a lot of times they have no idea who you are. You know, so you've got a clipboard, and sometimes people open it kind of gruffly, like, "Who are you? What do you want?" And then so as you explain, their their defenses go down a little bit, right? So then you you're you're okay, but it's the whole idea of you're having to bother somebody at their their home. You know, when I do, I do on the weekend. That's really the best time for me. I work during the week. Uh, that's really the best time. But again, somebody's in the comfort of their own home and you're you're essentially bothering them. You, you are. Right. And so obviously you may have woken somebody up from a nap. So they're already kind of angry at you. And you're right. saying, hey, can you help me out? With hey, something? can you help me? Right. You know, and so they're, they're already mad at you. And so um, I've, I've had pretty good success when I actually talk to people. They, they know what I'm doing there. Right. Um, they most people generally sign. There are a couple right. people that again they say they're I'm a Democrat or Republican. I don't want to do it. But yeah. generally speaking, once they know that you're not endorsing me as a candidate, you're just showing you support free and fair elections. They generally will sign. But again, it's trying to get back get over that that first initial hurdle that uh, is really unnecessary. Right. So. I've, I've uh, helped uh, Jay a couple of times, um, and he's Jay, one of, Jay Strickland. Jay he's Strickland one of the other candidates. House candidates. And right. what it is is it's, a, it's an individual conversation with for each and every signature. And um, that's what you're getting into. When you're talking about 20,188 signatures, you're talking about 20,188 persuasive conversations to sign a legal document. And it's very time consuming. And there's people who are suspicious because they don't know about it. And then once you finally do get that, then you're on to the next one. And it'd be one thing if you were able to actually uh, automate this. But the law is specifically written so that you cannot automate it. It's not like that you can set this up over email or you can set this up on any kind of website. It has to be on paper. It has to be the official form. 
Um, and it has to, that conversation has to take place. That's a great point because yeah. with social media, with everything that's out there, it'd be easy if I could just send it out there into the universe and say, Hey, sign my petition, you know, a couple months later, you know, mm-hmm. you get your, your signatures, you're good, right. but you've got to have it. Uh, you've got to have it notarized. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you've got to have, and, and right. Secretary of State and, will, and notary means you, that they had to do it in your presence. Exactly. So it's yeah, you have to. They have you have someone has to physically be there to get that signature. Right. And, so. and let's say you've got um, if I need seventeen sixty seven. Let's say I've got seventeen sixty six. Right. Then then they'll they'll still go through the ones that I do. Let's say I have, I have the full number I need. They'll go through line by line just to make sure there's there's something that I may have missed. Because on this on this the nomination petition, there's a signature. They print their name. They put their date of birth, their address, the county, and uh, what date it is they signed. Well, let's say you you know on one person you may have missed one. I may have had all the signatures that I needed, but on this one that was not completely 100 percent as it needs, mm-hmm. then they have the technical uh, ability to just kind of overturn it and mm-hmm. just throw that one away. Now now I'm not eligible, even though I technically got all the signatures I needed. So. So that's typically why libertarians go for more. Mm-hmm. You go yeah. for you go for a buffer, so you have extra, which again is more time, mm-hmm. more resources, and less time being able to campaign in the district and actually talk about what Republicans and Democrats are doing to us. Yeah, so. the, the number is thirty to thirty to fifty percent more. Uh, Rocky De La Fuente was a uh, candidate here for president, and they did not want him on the on the ballot. Um, because it, he was would be threatening the um, Democrats in this state, so he had the lowest percentage ever of ballot signatures at fifty four percent. They actually tossed forty six percent of his signatures, mm-hmm. and that was came out in the lawsuit. Wow! And 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 so I want to I want to switch over to to uh, Smythe Duval now. Smythe is our candidate running for statewide office, and once again. We have another set of requirements, and fortunately for Smythe, he has none. Well, that's that's almost true. Um, I got the uh, I have the benefit of the Libertarian Party and the things that they did back in the late eighties. And basically, there is a law in the Georgia statute that says that if a uh, political body, which is what how we're defined, attains a certain percentage on any statewide race then they are able to have statewide candidates get onto the ballot as long as they maintain that percentage. And so usually the libertarians traditionally run the public service commission, run other statewide races. They got to get their 2%. As long as they maintain that 2%, then they're able to maintain uh, statewide ballot access for the next next election year. Notice, though, that this is by design. And that's, and that's a good point, too, because here's the first criticism we always get of the libertarians. How come you guys don't run for, like, local offices? How come you always, run, how come you, always you know, hit, try to hit home runs and shoot for the big fish? What they don't understand is we are literally fighting to keep what we have, and right. we have to fight. So we, we have to run statewide candidates right. in, in order to keep, even if we don't necessarily want to run statewide candidates. Right. We have to. Well, it's, right. it's also, well, no, it's, it's a good point because, I mean, you're, it would be a whole lot easier to build a, a new political party if you were able to run at a state house or at the Congress. OK, that is just be able to run for city council or to be able to run for different kinds of things. But they purposely um, force you to run as a statewide. Now, this this is my first race. 
All right. And I can tell you that it would not have been my choice to run a statewide race as my very first race. But it was the, it was the race for me to run. But it takes the inc- amount of resources, that, as you can imagine, you know, for a brand new candidate, someone who has, uh, is stepping into the ring to be able to do this. It's a huge difference between running a state house and then running statewide. And, uh, and uh, it, is, it is by design. And it's, again, it's a way of exhausting your resources um, for some uh, organization that just doesn't have a lot of resources to begin with. Right. I mean, Georgia has 159 counties. If yeah. you run mm-hmm. a statewide, uh, if you run a statewide race, you have to campaign in theory in all of them in some in some aspect. Mm-hmm. So so Smythe is our is our statewide candidate. We have some other statewide candidates as well for public service commission. Of course, we have Ted Metz, who's running for governor. We also have some other some other um, uh, candidates who are running for Georgia House. Mm-hmm. Um, for Smythe, I want him to talk about, you know, not necessarily, not necessarily ballot access, but more reforms. What, sure. what do you, what do you see? Wh- how do you see the Libertarian Party reforming elections so that, you know, we, we provide more choice? That is, that's a great question. And one of the things that you had uh, hit on earlier is how does a lack of competition affect the community? And if you think about this for a moment, if you don't have competition on the ballot, what is there going? Is there an actual election taking place? In 2016, eight out of ten Georgia House members were unopposed in the general election. All right, that is an entire all all 180 House uh, Georgia House members. Eight out of ten of those had no opponent whatsoever in 2016. That is a result of gerrymandering. It's also a result of the ballot access. And if you think if there's if if you have no one to choose from, all right, there's no debates, there's no campaigns, there's no barbecues, there's no uh, reason to get people together, there's no newspaper columns. Um, one of the pivotal moments in, in me deciding to do this was that I noticed my I was talking to my, my two sons, 14 and 16, and they didn't even know that we had statewide and or for that. And they didn't know we had local elections. Uh, only the thing they were aware of was congressional elections and, the, and presidential. They didn't even know about them. And that's that's how it's impacting the community. We have entire generations of Americans now being raised and they've never never actually seen competitive races in their districts. What does it mean to actually start getting a competition on the ballot? A competition means that you're actually arguing. I'm sorry. Well, let me rephrase that. You're actually debating the issues. You're actually, you know, talking about the issues. You're actually uh, getting people together to what's going on in that local community. And that is a huge, huge draw to have a, a, a spirited campaign as opposed to no campaign whatsoever. We actually have people that have uh, won the primary and there is no opponent. They're already in the state house. They, all they did was they went down to the Georgia uh, as secretary of state's office. They paid their $400 and now they're in. And the, the fact of the matter is, is they might be in for a long time because they, of, of the way gerrymandering works. They won't be able to get, uh, you know, they won't have any competition. In terms of reform, the biggest challenge facing the United States and facing Georgia right now is gerrymandering. And I call it 21st century gerrymandering because they're using the power of computers that we have these days, an incredibly powerful uh, software, uh, mapping software, and all the big data that is provided by Google and by Facebook. 
and they can actually uh, draw the lines, the district lines, um, between backyards and through neighborhoods. And in fact, the politician actually and chooses the voters that they know are going to vote for them. And this is the thing about that makes gerrymandering work. We know from statistics that if a voter chooses uh, a primary, uh, a Democratic primary, two elections in a row, that they're probably going to vote Democrat for president. Or if they choose a Republican primary ticket, two elections in a row, they're going to be, uh, very reliably choose that ticket and vote for Republican. And that was makes gerrymandering work in the state. It makes it ex- in- incredibly, incredibly precise. And what that means is that if you, uh, you, you don't have these, you don't have competitive races because what's the point of being running in a race? If you know darn well, there's no voters that would even appeal that you could even appeal to that. that that's already, that, that it's already rigged. Um, it's, it's kind of come to a, a point in which we have a permanent majority and a permanent minority. And that's where we're, you were talking before at one point, how the Democrat and Republicans are coming, coming together as a large party. That's actually is happening on a national scale right now in which we're having uh, elections are becoming more political theater. There's not really much to them anymore. And we're having a going uh, settling into a permanent majority and a permanent minority. And if we don't, uh, the, the gerrymandering is the number one uh, issue facing the United States and Georgia, because you only get a crack at reforming it every 10 years. It's based on the pop, uh, the census type thing. Um, in terms of ballot access, competition. All right. And both gerrymandering and ballot access go together. Um, gerrymandering eliminates competition because the the um, you know politicians are choosing the voters. Ballot access eliminates competition because we you know, even though we are Americans, even though our supporters are Americans, we are treated in such a way that we are not allowed to organize and support our own candidate. And a lot of people don't realize that this cuts both ways. It's not just the candidates that are being dis- discriminated against. It's all the people in their communities, okay, who are not uh, actually are not allowed to organize their own political uh, support and get behind their own political candidate. Uh, you can't do it. I mean, it, it, it would it just right now it's there is regulatory prohibition against you actually being able to get your own candidate on the ballot. It doesn't matter if that was the, if they were the, the best person in the world. You can't get them on the ballot if they're not a Democrat and Republican. So these are the, t- uh, the types of reforms. These are the problems. The reforms are, are you know, lowering the ballot access rules or the regulations, getting rid of them, as Martin would say. Um, certainly, uh, we need uh, uh, an effective uh, gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is a uh, going to be in the uh, news a lot any day now. The Supreme Court is going to be uh, handing down uh, what their decision is on it. Um, and I'm running on a platform in which um, not only um, bringing gerrymandering as uh, the huge uh, and number one thing in uh, Georgia, but uh, being able to say, you know, we need to do something about it. Well, and I also think that the next two election cycles are going to be huge because both parties will be jockeying for control of their state houses mm-hmm. because 2020 is when you're going to get to redraw districts again, and then you don't get to do it again for 10 years. So so you're going to see a lot of jockeying over the 2018 and the 2020 election just for that reason. So that, I mean, the, the, you know, the, it's the spoils, you know, whoever controls the the House is going to be able to draw these districts. And, you know, I think the last I think the last uh, I heard, and, and this goes to gerrymandering specifically, out of the 435 House seats across the country, 
less than 50 of them are competitive. Oh, it's less than that. Yeah. I mean, that, that's right. the last statistic. Mm-hmm. So, so basically what's happened is in each state, the legislatures have gotten together and they kind of wink and nod at each other and say, we'll give you this one. It's this one's safe for you. And, you know, you give us that one and that one's safe for you. And then mm-hmm. and then we'll make one this sort of, you know, competitive ish, mm-hmm. you know, and then that way it keeps the courts off our backs because nobody wants the courts coming in. And and so they so they they give you the appearance of, like you said, yes. of actually having choice. Now, Georgia is a 50 plus one state. So explain right. that. So Georgia is one of five states that actually requires a majority to win. All right. So that means you have to have 50 percent of the vote plus one more and then you're declared the winner. And if you don't have that 50 percent plus one, then in Georgia, we go to a runoff and the runoff these days is now nine weeks later. Uh, the uh, that runoff uh, will determine who will be uh, the winner of the campaign. So here in the most recently, you know, we had uh, in the GOP primary, there were five candidates uh, for governor. And the two candidates that are uh, now in the runoff are uh, Mr. Kemp and, and Mr. Cagle. Uh, and they'll be facing each other uh, and, and later here in July. And that it, that uh, runoff, one of the things that when we're talking about reforms, Runoffs in Georgia, it's a, it's a great thing that we require a majority, okay? It's, it's way better than just getting the, whoever gets the most votes. So having a, having a majority requirement is, is absolutely a good thing. We never want to get rid of that. However, we could have a way of, instead of having these expensive runoffs, Every, every election year. And we spend, as taxpayers, Georgia spends millions and millions of dollars on staffing, on getting these machines out, on doing all this stuff for runoffs. We could put in a, a, an election system that just collects all the information the first time you're at the polls, and it's called ranked choice voting. And ranked choice voting is, is that you just provide just a little bit more information about what candidates that you would prefer if your first choice doesn't make it uh, make it uh, the majority the first time around. That is, you're actually ranking your candidates, one for your favorite candidate, two for your next choice, three for your next choice, and so on and so forth. And with that information, then they're able to have what's called an instant runoff. We would, we would have known in the Georgia GOP uh, governor's primary who would have won um, that night? Um, you know, they w- it would have it would uh, an election and an instant runoff would have been apparent. We would have known actually who who would have won that night. So basically, we had we had five candidates, six candidates. I think was mm-hmm. actually what was on the ballot. So everyone would have chosen one through six, mm-hmm. putting your number one in as your most favorite. Yeah. Number two, who you could live with. Number three, okay, he's better than. Four, five, and six, right? And you rank them from one to six, and then and then we, the process just goes through the iterations of the ballots at, the, until someone gets Sometimes. a majority. Exactly. So you 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 did this as a test, right? I did. So I created a poll um, and uh, put it out there on the internet, and we actually had uh, you know advertised it on Facebook, had people participate in this poll. It was a ranked choice voting poll. It had all the GOP candidates. And it was fascinating, uh, a fascinating study. And this, this is uh, available out there on my website. Um, but the, what we found out is that um, neither of the frontrunners, uh, which is Mr. Kemp or Mr. Cagle, actually were a consensus candidate. So Mr. Kemp, uh, or let's talk about Cagle. Cagle had 40% of the vote. Okay, so he didn't have the 50% plus one to get, uh, you know, to win. All right, but he only had, he, he had the most votes. 
But if you think about this for a second, he had 60 percent of Republicans vote against him. All right. Correct. Kemp had 25 percent of the vote. He was in second place. Okay, so he's now in the runoff, but he had 75 percent of Republicans vote against him. So you now have two people in the governor's race in which a majority of the Republicans actually voted against. All right. And this is what's a problem with uh, what we have right now is called minority rule. All right. When we actually ran the, uh, the ranked choice voting poll in which people got to rank their first favorite and their second favorite, Duncan Hill was by far the consensus candidate. He came out in the fourth round having the most choice, or the most votes, the most votes. He had 50, I think 51%. 51%, that is correct. It went through its, after it went right. through the multiple, the multiple yeah. cycles. And basically what happens is it, it drops, once it goes through a, a one cycle, it drops the lowest candidate correct. and then goes to the next set of choices, two, three, four, yes. and then it drops again and goes three, four, five, and it, and it, it adds those. And so... So Hunter Hill actually won. Hunter Hill had the most broad-based support among all Republicans. He had the most. He would have been uh, the candidate that would have had uh, uh, would have been a uh, had a majority of Republican support going into November. All right, and so now our Republicans are saying, okay, well, I really didn't like either uh, these guys, but I'm just going to decide if I'm going to, you know, be a good party member and go along with these or or not. And of course, that does, you know that that's where um, you know competition helps. Is that if we have more people on the ballot, it's like, well, I don't like how the, this was decided. Let's take a look at somebody else. Right. Excellent. Excellent. All right, Martin. We're going to circle back to you now. I know we have ongoing litigation, so give us an update on whatever you can update us on in terms of where things are, what kind of time frames, what just, you know, give us your feel for all this since you're closest to it. I think the lawsuit will be decided this year. Uh, I think we will win it. The total win would be the signature requirement is just unconstitutional and there is no signature requirement. Uh, I'm not sure that'll happen. It might be something like uh, the decision might be 750 is the state uh, requirement for for the presidential race, so there are 14 congressional districts, so 14 divided into 75 is the, is the number that you have to get for congressional districts. That might be the decision that would not be as desirable as the first, which is it seems to be more reasonable to say it's unconstitutional. If you pay your $5,220, you're, you're on the ballot if you're uh, nominated by your party. And, and, what, and what, what kind of problems just, because I don't know the state's argument, what kind of problems would it have? I know you have to be a political body first, so you're not going to have the Disney party be able to put a candidate out because they're not going to be considered a political uh, you know, uh, body like we are, like libertarians are. What, what is the state, why do they use this to limit ballot access? Not What's their argument? Yes. Well, they, they don't want to have runoffs. They, they, they do cost money, but they're, they're always runoffs. Right. But I am a lawyer. I've been a lawyer since 1975, which means, what is that, 43 years? Right. I have been involved in judicial races uh, and been aware of judicial races for that entire period of time. In order to run for judge, when the judge retires before the end of his term, you have to pay your filing fee, which is $5,220. It's a big number because the judges have a big salary and it's 5% of that number. Right. It is not at all uncommon for five 
independent judges because you can't have parties and judgeships, right? If you don't have right. a Republican, it's, nonpartisan. it's a nonpartisan race. It's not uncommon at all for five judges, for five wannabe judges to sign up, pay their $5,220 to be on the ballot, and then to have a uh, go to the general election. Two of the top candidates are there, and then you have a runoff. It's very common. Happens all the time in judicial races. So there's absolutely no problem in, in, in congressional races if everybody who paid their $5,220 got on the ballot. If it was 14 people, so what? <laughs> that's 14. That's a lot of money for the state, right? Right. But it, but it doesn't cost any more to add a, a second name or a third name or a fourth name or even five names like they do in the judge races all the time. So their so their argument of having lots and lots and lots of people is just invalid. It's invalid. I mean, they, they do it all the time with judges. It wouldn't happen anyway because you know, people don't want to spend five thousand two hundred twenty dollars. That's a chunk of money, right? You know, right. and and not everybody's going to put that money down. And um, you know, so I, I think their argument's totally invalid. We'd have a very interesting uh, situation if the, there was no signature requirement. In fact, there was a law proposed this year at the legislature that had that act, actual outcome. It didn't go anywhere, but it was great. It never, it, made it, it never made it out of the hopper, never got a hearing. No, but, but I was delighted. It was, I think it was just introduced. Yeah, which was, which was nice. I yeah, mean, I was glad least. to see that because that's right. exactly what we want. Right, right. But okay. it, didn't, it didn't go anywhere. Excellent. Okay, so we're, so we're just going to wait. Hopefully by the end of the year, we'll have an outcome. Uh, yeah. I think the, we'll have a win. I think no. we'll have a win, and then we can apply it to Damon's race, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Same, well, and, and, the same of the same law, the logic applies to him too. Yes, and 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 interestingly enough, what do you think the legislature's response is going to be if the law is struck down and it's deemed unconstitutional? Do you think they will come back to the table and try to put up another ballot access? Uh, try to put something up in place. Well, of I haven't it. done anything in response to Judge Story's ruling. So, I, and the Green Party Constitution Party versus Brian Kemp, they did nothing about that. So, I would I would think they would do nothing. There is an interesting development. One of my co-plaintiffs, John Mons, um, who is one of our most famous Georgia Libertarians, one million votes, one million votes, and a PSC race, right? Correct. He was called by Brian Kemp's office to be on a ballot access group. Uh, for the study group, and he asked me, and he asked our lawyer, and he said, "Is that a conflict? Because I'm suing you." Well, he asked them. They said, "We don't care," and uh, the lawyer said, "I don't care," and I said, "I don't care." Mm-hmm. And so we have a libertarian on the ballot access committee that Brian Kemp has created, and maybe that'll go somewhere. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Excellent, excellent. Uh, I'm going to go around the room. Final words from everybody. Smythe, since you went last, you get to go first. Any final words? Uh, yeah. Uh, ranked choice voting is uh, make it's one, one issue I'm going to run on. It's an issue that uh, one of the candidates, other uh, Republican candidates, Buzz Brockway, said we should be doing for our military overseas so that they are able to participate in the runoffs. And also the runoffs don't take place nine weeks after the general election. And uh, so... Ranked choice voting would save millions and millions of tax dollars. Right now, uh, the Casey Cagle and Brian Kemp are sniping at each other, um, saying that you know, the, the, the runoff you know, is expensive and they're trying to pin it on Kemp. But the fact of the matter is, is none of them, are, neither one of them are bringing this up. It's not, they're, not, uh, they're not leading. And I'm here as a citizen candidate, and I intend to provide leadership. Excellent. Damon? Well, um, I think that... The idea of running for public office is a um, it's a very uh, big decision anybody should have to make. And everybody should have the same. We should be on the same playing field. Right. So if I've got to go out and get signature uh, petitions to be on the ballot, 
then if Democrats, Republicans have to as well, then okay, no harm, no foul. We're great. But the fact that they're able to pay and get on the ballot automatically, and I've got to go out there and spend time away from my family to go out there and get on the ballot, is is really against the idea of what we hold to be true about having a, a true democracy and, and all this other stuff that we talk about. So it's good in theory to say that, hey, we, we support free and fair elections until you don't, when I've got to spend time away from my family on the weekends trying just trying to get on the ballot, and they don't have to do that. So if, if they had to do the same thing I'm doing, then we're fine. But the fact that I've got to do this and they don't makes me sick and shouldn't make anybody that, that really wants true choices, it should make them sick as well. So, Martin? Uh, I'm very happy to have been here, and I'm glad to be with these fine men. men. The, this is a great group of candidates, and I'm just proud to be among them. We have probably the best set of libertarian candidates this go around than we've had in a long time. Uh, everyone has done a great job, and everyone continues to do uh, uh, you know, noble work for the Libertarian Party. For those of you out there who are listening to this, this is tough. This is hard. These are citizen candidates. These are, you know, we don't, we don't, the Libertarians do not, um, you know, we don't take corporate donations. We don't have anybody backing us. These guys are out there busting it on the weekends and doing a great job. Uh, if you want, if you want any more information about the candidates, rather than them go through and tell you all their their touch points, you can go to liberty. Uh, you can go to the lpgeorgia.com, lpgeorgia.com, Spell the word Georgia out forward slash candidates, and that will list not only these three gentlemen but all of our other candidates. It's got all their contact information. Hey, send them some money. Okay, send them some money. That never hurts, even if it's five dollars. You'd be surprised. You know, I don't think people realize that. You know, sometimes we have to employ uh, people to get signatures for us. If if it gets down to the end and we're getting close, you know, we'll have to spend money. Imagine libertarians spending money for signatures while Republicans and Democrats are spending the same money on flyers mailers, social media, you know, we're, we're having to spend our money just to give you a choice, just to give you a choice. Thank you, gentlemen, for all being here tonight, today. And uh, any, if you need any more information about the Libertarian Party of Georgia, uh, again, lpgeorgia.com. Uh, we'd, we'd love to have you come join. We have all kinds of programs for you guys to join up and be part of the uh, Libertarian Party. Uh, I'd like to thank our producer extraordinaire, Matt Franklin of Most Uniquest. Thank you, Matt. And until next time. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the official podcast of the Libertarian Party of Georgia. The theme song for this episode was Metaltania by Kevin McLeod, released to the public domain through freepd.com. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to rate us and leave a review. You can email the show's producers at podcast at lpgeorgia.com. If you're a libertarian in the state of Georgia, don't forget to find your local affiliate at lpgeorgia.com. <laughs>